Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Kim Adonizio, who has a collection of essays, Bukowski in a Sundress, Confessions from a Writing Life, also recently a collection of poetry, Mortal Trash, and two years ago, a collection of stories, Palace of Illusions. Kim Adonizio is the author of two previous novels, My Dreams Out in the Streets and Little Beauties. There are six poetry collections. There's a chapbook, word and music, CDs. Kim Adonizio was living in New York for a while, and she's now in the San Francisco Bay Area. Bukowski and a Sundress is about the writer's life. I was talking to a friend about it. He said, before I'd finished reading the book, and he said, what's Bukowski and a Sundress like? I said, you know, she talks a lot about drinking, having sex, and writer's <laughs> block. And he said, oh, that sounds just like Bukowski. <laughs> <laughs> but the title came from something else. Somebody called you that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Those are definitely in the book, but it's also about being a mother and being a daughter and all sorts of things really related to writing. Yeah, a critic called me that once when I was up for some award, as someone told me, and I just decided to claim it. There's an essay about that in the book that talks about sort of what was happening and gave me a chance to get back a little with some snark of my own. For those who don't know, who was Bukowski? It's funny because he seems to me pretty famous and iconic as a writer. I mean, you know, he's, he published something like 47 books or so, and he's still wildly popular in Europe. And I think for a lot of young people, that's sort of their gateway into literature. But well, we could talk about the literary merits of Bukowski or not. But the fact is that he resonates with a lot of young people, and so his stories and books and his poems seem to be something that they gravitate to, that they really need at that particular age. And then you could be played by Mickey Rourke in the movie. <laughs> or Ben Gazzara. Yeah. Both or, of whom played Bukowski, sort yeah. of. Yeah. And then uh, who was the other one? Matt Dillon. Factotum. Oh, About really? his time at the post office. Kim Adnizio, <laughs> you've had an interesting life. You're father was a sports writer and your mother had been a tennis star, but by the time you came along, that was in the past, her being a tennis star. Right, yeah. I mean, she was very well known in Washington in the tennis community, and she taught there and had a tennis camp there for many years. And her victories also at that time were a lot closer than they are now, right? We're talking 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So at that time, a lot more people remembered her Wimbledon champion, four times national champion. Pauline Betts? Yeah, yeah. And your dad, did he write for like the Washington Post or something? He did. He was a columnist for the Washington Post and mostly covered baseball. Washington Senators, but worst team in the league. <laughs> but it was great because we went to a lot of ball games and we went every year down to spring training in Florida 
with our dad and mom and our whole family went down to Florida. We went to school down there, which was kind of a great thing. That part of it is not really covered in the uh-huh. book. What right. is covered in the book is a little more about your mother during her last years in a home, which for those of us getting up there in years is a scary proposition because we're a few steps still removed from that. But when that's our future, you want to jump off a bridge. You know, I don't know. I don't want to jump off the bridge just yet, but it's sobering, let's say. You know, and I think a lot of us in the baby boom generation are going through this, watching our parents go down and trying to take care of them or figure out what to do at the end of their lives and being aware that we don't necessarily want to follow that same path. And I think that actually elder care is changing because of that, because of the baby boom. I think more people are saying, well, wait a minute, we don't want to be in some sterile institution, even if we have to be taken care of in certain ways. We want to have a place that's got music and art and, you know, some aesthetics to it versus the places it seems like a lot of them now are there, you know, one step away from a hospital. When you were there with your mother, uh, it was an extremely painful experience because she was I guess, diagnosed as dementia, but that, as I found out with my stepfather, that doesn't necessarily mean they're crazy. It just means they go in and out of consciousness, basically. Well, yeah, yeah. My mother had Parkinson's as well as some dementia and was basically in assisted living for the last 10 years of her life. And that was very tough for her, as it would be tough for anyone, but I think especially someone who was an athlete her entire life and really still loved to jog and played some tennis and went swimming. And that was really her life was the life of the body. So I think it was doubly painful for her to sort of be reduced as she was. Well, there's no stories in Palace of Illusions that are directly related to that, though there is a cancer story which has certain overtones. Did you, that translate into your poetry at all? The end of my mother's life yeah. or some of that? Yeah, I've, I've definitely written some poems about that. So there is some overlap, especially in this new book of poetry, Mortal Trash. I've got a couple things about family and my mother. And it, it just happened that um, when I was writing these essays, was, you know, during the time that this was all happening. So I wish I had been keeping notes in my earlier years because it's a little skewed in terms of reading that and feeling like that's the whole relationship, which it wasn't, you know. But what I remember most was, because it was so recent, was my mother's decline. And those are the things I wrote about because that was the time I was writing essays. And she had an affair with Spencer Tracy. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, apparently she did. Before she met my father, I should say. She hobnobbed with a lot of famous Hollywood people in her day. During those years, was there any focus on that? Did you get to meet him, or was it more like meeting members of the Washington senators? Number nine, Frank Howard, the big guy. Right. Yeah, I can't remember their names, but yeah, I knew a lot of the players. You know, we were the kids hanging around the clubhouse, and and so we were like their mascots, you know. They were great. Do you ever think of being a sports writer, getting involved? Because both of your parents were sports people. Exactly, yeah. No, and I wasn't a sports person. I, I grew up playing tennis. I grew up on a tennis court. But I never was competitive. I only liked to rally, I think, because I didn't like to lose. And I played on my high school team, but I, I just wasn't anything I wanted to pursue. And I think, actually, I found books a lot because... I wasn't so interested in sports, and that was pretty much the environment in my house. Four brothers and nonstop sports. Also, since your father was a writer, there was 
certainly a literary tradition in your family, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember my father sitting down at the kitchen table with his yellow Western Union paper and his carbon paper, working away in his little Smith Corona. And that was a pretty you know, regular scene when he was around was he'd be sitting there typing up his column at the kitchen table. So certainly there was a sense that writing was something you could do, but my parents were not really literary readers. So I had to find literature on my own. I found it at the library and in school. What did they say when they saw that you were reading this literature? I don't think they really noticed or thought about it. The big thing was Kimmy. She's always got her nose in a book. We'd be driving somewhere, I'd be sitting in the back reading. So that was the thing more that I just read all the time from like when I was nine. I used to borrow my brother's library cards because you could only take out three books at a time from the library. So I would borrow my two brother's cards because they never used them and I would take out nine books (laughs) every week and just, you know, just fell into reading. Was there poetry in the reading or at that point just fiction? No, not poetry really. I didn't discover poetry till my late 20s was really when I kind of found out what it was. At least it did something to me that I really liked and wanted to follow. Do you remember what it was that turned you on to poetry? Yeah, it was a piece by Sylvia Plath. I'm sure it must have been in Ariel. Uh, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, too, about mm-hmm. sort of coming to coming to discover poetry in that moment when I read something that was called poetry and just sort of got blown away by it, even though I didn't understand it or know what it was. And I, you know, I'd I'd read a little bit of poetry in school. And of course, we'd studied Shakespeare, but didn't really know anything about contemporary poetry. Didn't even know people were still writing it. Who knew? What about lyrics of songs, popular songs, which in their own way are poetry, too? I mean, there's always Some of them, yeah. I mean, I would... I would make a distinction between music that is song lyrics that's meant that really has its full expression when it's put with the melody and music or writing that is more for the page or more something that doesn't require necessarily, you know, a lot of other notes around it in order to be heard. Well, what about something like Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen? I would say, yeah, I, I mean, those guys are definitely crossover guys stuff by Tom Waits to and Joni Mitchell. So there were a number of those songwriters were kind of my people when I was growing up, you know, listening to them. And I'm sure that they had some kind of influence, too, that I wasn't even aware of at the time. <laughs> Kim Anizio, in an interview, you said, a talent for poetry doesn't come independently from reading it. Did I say that? But it helps a lot part of it is that if you want to be a writer or if you want to be any good as a writer that you're reading all the time and you're reading and learning from your reading and that's really crucial. I don't know what I meant. What it makes me think of now is that there are a lot of people who know a lot about poetry academically but that doesn't necessarily mean they can write it. So I think you can know about it without necessarily having the capacity to write it because I think there, there are two parts of the brain that have to talk to each other. And I think the academic mind is generally, what is it, left brain is the right hand and that's the more logical yeah. right. And then the right brain is the intuitive. And there has to be that balance in order for creative work to happen. For some poets, writing prose is particularly difficult because in poetry, every word has a real purpose over and over and over again. And while it's true, every word has a purpose in prose, 
that purpose is in a way lesser because there's so many words. You don't have to worry quite as much about it. Yeah, except that I think if you're a poet writing fiction, you obsess over every word and every sentence and the rhythm of every sentence because that's one thing poetry teaches you is attention to language, imagery, metaphor, simile, how to really listen to language. And that helps you a lot when you turn to prose. You've already got a really good foundation and your writing is going to be probably a lot more interesting than people who are starting out and haven't written much and have to learn those things like detail, for example, sufficient physical detail to make the scene come alive or make the character come alive. There's a few short pieces in Bukowski and also in Palace of Illusions, which almost could be poetry if they were placed in verse. There are a couple of very, very short stories in Palace of Illusions. And I wonder, in those, were you really making a choice to write prose, or did it just come out that way and you're going, I don't know what quite this is? No, I feel very much that, that Palace of Illusions, that those are stories. Okay. Those are fiction, and those are stories. And there are a couple pieces in Bukowski that not Bukowski himself. That's just why I call my book now Bukowski, but right. Bukowski in his undress. But there are a couple pieces in there that I think could sort of almost stand alone as prose poems or little sections of essays that generally use a lot of repetition at the beginning. There's one about drinking that does that and sort of says because, 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 right. and goes into all yeah. the reasons that I have raised a glass in my life or might <laughs> still raise a glass. And then there's another one called How I Write, that sort of uses that uh, refrain of, I write, I write. And, and so there are definitely a couple of little snippets that are probably poetically infused in some way. But in the end, I, I don't think it matters that much. I mean, I've seen prose that is short, and it has been in one place classified as a prose poem, and in another place it's been classified as a short, short fiction piece. And in the end, I think it doesn't matter so much what the genre is as long as it's interesting and compels you in some way. Something like Changing Light at Sandover is not even a poem, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you do know some poetry. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Kim Adonizio, when I interviewed Mark Doty, he said, good poetry is basically what moves you. Yet, at the same time, you say when reading something, or your own work, let's say, oh, I thought it was really good, and then three days later you go, oh, this is crap, and you tear it up. For you, what is good poetry, and how do I know? I mean, poets tell me, okay, that's bad poetry, that's good poetry. How do I know what's good or bad? Yeah, well, that's a very thorny question, and you could ask probably 50 editors that question, and you would find some consensus, but you would find a lot of differences of, of opinion, too, because it's an art form, and like anything, I mean, some people love abstract art, some people really like figurative painting, and some people love keen, and they're very moved by those big-eyed kids, you know? So, I mean, obviously part of it is an aesthetic sense, and it's not just being moved by something. And of course, if it moves you and you wrote it, that isn't a measure of anything. Because of course, it's going to move you. It's your life and you're at the center of your universe. But if it's going to move someone else in a meaningful way, you have to be able to craft it and to think about the reader and, you know, make some gestures, at least towards the fact that you're trying to communicate something in a passionate way. So when you read something that you've written, you say, this is great. And three days later, you want to toss it on a, on the ash heap. Right. 
What's changed? Well, this is just called the process of writing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Anne Lamott talks about, let's just say, less than stellar first drafts. She has another adjective for it that we can't say on the radio. But, you know, when you first write something, it doesn't come out usually near what you had in mind or what you were aiming for. And if it does, you're probably someone like Mozart who just, I don't know, in a previous life already got all the stuff he needed and came into the world pretty much fully formed and just needed a little bit, you know, to immediately sort of access it all and put out something that was brilliant. But, you know, most of us are just pretty much not that kind of genius, the other kind of genius, which means that you just apprentice yourself to your tutelary spirit in the Roman sense of the genius of the household. And that's, I think, more what writers, most writers on the planet are doing, writing something that's not so great, but finding something in it that you can work on, developing that and making it better and doing that for as long as it needs to until it gets to you know, be realized. How do you know a poem is realized? It's hard to say. Yeah, when I first write it, I think it's great. But that's because I'm partly in that sort of high of composition and writing. It's very much sort of a flow state to be there. And then when I'm done and I leave it alone and I can come back even a couple days later and read it a little bit as though I hadn't written it, that's when I can tell what a reader might think, at least a reader like me. Are you able to separate yourself out from your work and see it with someone else's eye in a way? I think it's always in the end impossible to do that because we can't ever quite know what it's like to be in somebody else's head or heart or mind and understand how they're processing what you've written or what you've done. Obviously, there are places we can connect and communicate or we wouldn't, we're doing it right now, you know. I mean, we're understanding each other and we're not exactly speaking poetry, but there is that function of poetry, I think, that's meant to communicate. The more you can unglue yourself from your own writing, if you're if you're trying to write something, the better. It takes a while to learn that, you know, and, and of course, because we've all got our egos involved, and, and it's hard to hear that you haven't done something well, and, you know, whether that's somebody telling you that, like, I don't understand a word you wrote, <laughs> or... Whatever it is, it's 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 difficult for us to sort of be beginners or go back to that place. But for a writer, you're sort of always at that place, I think, of being a beginner. Every new piece, you're not sure how it's going to work out. Even if you have an outline or some sort of idea, uh, you just don't know what's going to happen in the writing itself. It's like that scientific thing where you change something by observing it. It's almost like whatever your idea is in your head, as soon as you start writing it, it changes And the writing takes you somewhere that maybe you didn't intend, which is fun also. One thing I do as a litany when I come into most interviews, I say to myself, you know, if it really sucks, I won't air it. And that kind of gives me the freedom. Uh And I guess it's the same way for you. If it really sucks, it'll never see the light of day. Oh, yeah. I've got piles of that stuff, (laughs) you know. And every writer does. A lot of stuff that doesn't work out. And you just move on and go, well, there's other stuff to do. Yeah. Unless you hit writer's block, which is a key element (laughs) of Bukowski and his sundress. Yeah. A writer writes, but a writer with writer's block. Eats and gets depressed and finally opens a bottle of wine. (laughs) Yeah. A key component of Bukowski and his sundress is dealing with writer's block. I finally decided years ago after writing two unpublished books and 
starting a million and one essays, I said to myself, you know, I'm not a writer. And it freed me not to write. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I guess if you make your living that way, you don't have that option. And I always want to write. That's the thing. I mean, I, I miss it when I'm not connected with it. And I also I think I included that, one, because I do struggle with that, as a lot of writers do, and also because I wanted people to know just because you've published books. I mean, I've probably published about a dozen books by now, and yet I still sit down and get stuck. And I still have, you know, days or weeks when I'm trying to work and trying to do something, and all I'm doing is typing. Type, 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 blah, blah, blah. And I will just do that myself and write blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, because it's fickle. It's capricious. You know, discipline is pretty important because especially since it's capricious, you want to make sure you're there when something happens. So that sort of getting regular writing time or making writing time in your busy life, which everybody who writes struggles with, is just really important. You're not going to get anywhere if you just occasionally sit down when the mood strikes and knock out a piece. So you sort of have to put yourself on some kind of schedule in a way. Yeah. I, I mean, I have had times when I haven't done that, but I've gotten a lot more done when I have. Is social media helpful or an absolute distraction? It's both. It's both. I can get sucked into the sinkhole of Facebook or Twitter. Those are the two social media platforms I'm on. But then again, you know, there's a lot of great stuff that I encounter there as well. Everything from news to, you know, I was just watching the, all the awful videos of all the shootings recently. And so there are a lot of things that I find on there that just sort of feed my general sense of whether it's the news or the writing culture or whatever it happens to be. And you never know what spark is going to take you out anywhere. Yeah, you don't know. I mean, especially with a poem, my essays tend to be more now at least more about narrative and my poems are more about I want to be surprised in some way I want to be sort of woken up by the language and I'm not that interested so much in quite as much in story and so that means that when I write a poem it could be about one thing it could be about like looking at the East River in Manhattan but then I might pull in something from somewhere else like I that I just saw on Twitter or Facebook because it's more about an idea, a lyrical idea, than it is necessarily about, I want to tell you something about the East River in Manhattan. It's more about, you know, here's my meditation as I look at it, or here are my thoughts, and I'm thinking about something else like connection and friendship. And that really is what the piece is about. Can you start a piece, say, about those shootings, and then when it's done, it's got nothing to do with that? I think you could, yeah. Or you could write a poem that has nothing to do with it that could really speak to people. There's a poem recently that went viral on the internet that I just reposted on my Facebook page, and it wasn't written about the Orlando shootings, but right after the Orlando shootings, it was all over Facebook. Everybody was sharing that poem because it was just about teaching your children about the world. And that just spoke to everybody at that moment. So that's the kind of poem. A poem doesn't necessarily have to be overtly political to speak to our political situation. And that's what that poem did. Does that make it a good poem? I think it's a terrific poem. I mean, of course, people could find solace in the Lord's Prayer. Not maybe such a bad poem either. There's a lot of good poems in the Bible. (laughs) Maybe not the best example. But, you know, people can find solace from something like when someone dies, oh, he's in a better place. I don't personally find solace from that because I don't believe in the better place. But still, you can be comforted by trite things. But also, I think when a poem is good and also 
speaks to that, it shows you what poetry can do that maybe no other art form quite does, at least in the same way. You know, poetry is, is what people reach for, you know, for a wedding, for a funeral, for all those occasions that are sort of high points in life, the intensities of life. And poems have an ability to speak to that intensity in a way that I'm not sure. I, I mean, music does it very well in a nonverbal way often. And that's one advantage I think it has. You don't have to understand language or even the language of music to really appreciate it. Although, if you do know something about it, you can appreciate it more. And I think the same is true of poetry. And then, of course, music with great lyrics will, I guess, do the same thing as well. Yeah, it's a great combination. Kim Abnizio, Bukowski and Asundress is a semi-memoir, meaning that there are pieces of your life, but also questions. You had an older brother named John who was very difficult, and there's a couple of essays in there, and actually a story in Palace of Illusions called Ice, which is also a bit about him. Right. It's actually not my brother John. It's a different brother who's not named. My brother John is another of my brothers who died, actually, and he's mentioned in the book, but the, the one who was mentally ill I didn't mention by name. How did he die? My brother John? Yeah. He had a liver transplant uh, about 14 years before he died. It just continued to give him problems and uh, eventually just died from it. Not the mentally ill And one. he was not the mentally ill okay. one. My oldest brother was the mentally ill one. My oldest brother is still alive, as far as I know. That was the one who uh, tried to contact you? My oldest brother, uh, a friend of his emailed me and said, I'm a friend of your brother, the oldest one also known as the bad brother sometimes, and told me that he was, you know, in, in tough shape and living on food stamps and about to be homeless and had had a lot of problems and operations and uh, wanted to know if I would get in touch with that brother. And the, so the essay was just about making that decision and, and talking a little bit about our childhood and what kind of childhood I had with this brother the one who beat you up. Yeah, and what kind of family that made us in a certain sense. And he's still alive insofar as you know. I, as far as I know, yeah. Because neither you nor your other brothers have contact with him. No, we don't. He's the one that burned down the condo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the condo burning sister beating <laughs> bad and, brother. And he's the bad brother in ICE who is not named. Yeah, there's some stuff based on that. Do you worry in your stories about using real people as fodder for your stories and taking them in places? And do those people recognize themselves? You know, fiction is very different. I mean, the memoir is is true. I, I didn't do any composite characters. I changed some names here and there, but that's about it. Whereas fiction, those characters, they may, they may draw from people that I knew, right. and certainly that particular story in Palace of Illusions draws on my older brother's violence, but it's not what happened. You know, right. I didn't have a parent who owned a skating rink or <laughs> any of the other things that go on, but, you know, you pull from wherever when you're writing fiction, and you use what's around you, but you also use your imagination. You use stories people tell you, and there are true things in the fiction of every writer, but no one could tell you what they are except the writer. What you think is true probably isn't. It's very tricky to try to parse out what's really autobiographical in fiction. 
It was a little easier for me in reading Bukowski in a sundress directly after reading Palace of Right, because there are some clear, yeah. There's a couple of stories in there where while they're fiction, they're so close to essays about your life that it really feels like reading an alternate reality Kim Adonizio, if that makes sense. Hey, like the half-vampire girl? Well, that, not that <laughs> Not that one? Not that one, but there's, there's um, a couple of drunken stories and a couple of sex stories, mm-hmm. which are fiction because you tell me they're fiction, but then when I read Bukowski in a sundress, I'm going, the actions may be fiction, but the feeling is not. Well, that's the difference, right? The feeling is not. I mean, there's another piece in Palace of Illusions about a 15-year-old girl who has an affair with her her best friend's father. I don't need to tell you whether that's true or not. It doesn't happen to be true. I invented pretty much everything in that story. And then there are other stories that maybe hew somewhat closer to some events. But again, it's fiction, and what you're doing is creating a story, and you're using anything you can use to create a character. So if somebody has a tick... And you notice that tick, whatever it is, as a writer, you want to use that in some way. As a fiction right. writer, you're like, this is great. This will, this will set my character apart because this particular character, you know, does whatever he does. I don't know, makes a little sucking sound through his teeth. Whatever it is, and you notice those things about people, and then you think, aha, I can use this. Where you use it, you don't often know where it's going to fit. You just, you're reaching for something and you create a character and suddenly you remember the guy who sucked air through his teeth and made a funny noise. All of a sudden, that's in your story. But it's not about that guy, whoever that person was, who right. you may or may not have known or or who you might have heard about. It's just something it's that It's just you're... something that you're using and you're just pulling in whatever you can use because that's the way writers work. There were two stories in Palace of Illusions which I felt might be possibly novels. One is about the dwarves in New York. It's an unnamed city, but I kind of imagined them in Portland. Okay, okay. Uh, But yeah, the seven dwarves waiting for Snow White, and they're really this sort of kind of cult, (laughs) and they're really just little people, you know, who who sort of have banded together. And this one guy's kind of delusion that he's keeping these people together in order to wait for Snow White, who's this imaginary goddess. That story, I doubt if it could continue for 200 pages, but it could. But the other one is the vampire girl. Uh And I kept thinking as I was reading it, hey, this could be a novel. It could be a movie. I mean, she's got an entire history that sort of ties in with what we know of vampires, but also doesn't. The way it ends, it has to end. But the characters before the ending, I mean, before you come to the conclusion, right, could have been more. Had that been in your mind, or had you always known that was a story? No, I, I wrote it as a story. You know, I don't know. I feel like also the vampire thing has been so done to death. I was really he- even hesitant about putting that story in because it's a girl who's half vampire. She's a college student, so she's obviously struggling with her light and dark side. So I hope that it that made it interesting and, and worth adding to the already glutted genre of, of <laughs> vampire stories, you know. And I don't think I would want to write a vampire novel, but the story was fun to write. There's also a story that takes place in a circus, and I don't remember the exact place, but there was a place in Bukowski where you're talking maybe about a boyfriend 
who had a past. Yes. And this was the past in your imagination. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I actually, for that particular piece, I did have a boyfriend like that, and I just interviewed him and asked him to talk to me about what it was like to be with the circus. It was really a carnival, not a circus. And he just told me all kinds of things. And so I had a basis in that case because, you know, you're also trying to make a real world, right, in in fiction. You have to create a, a, a kind of world. And if you have not been a part of that world, you have to find a way to make it sound real and true. So, and I'm not very good at research. I mean... When I wrote Little Beauties, my first novel, it you know a lot of it takes some of it takes place in a baby store because the woman works there. I never set foot in a baby store. I googled <laughs> baby products, <laughs> but I needed to make the store real, so I just made up the store in my head and used what I found online to to put in the store. And that's the way I work a lot is I just Google something or I ask somebody who knows that world and say, talk to me about it. Tell me stuff. What was it like? What, you know, where did you go? What happened there? Who were the, what were the characters like? And that gives me, you know, some good real world stuff that I can go off of when I don't know anything about that territory. A lot of research doesn't find its way directly into stories, but it's there in the back of your head. I take notes before I come into an interview that I may not even use in the interview. Do you do research in that sense for poetry? Sometimes, yeah. I, I keep a sort of loose journal on my computer, and I'll just call it like Notes July 2016. And I'll Sometimes I write there a lot, and sometimes I'll write a little bit. But it's often just notes about what's going on or something that struck me that if I didn't write it down, I'd probably forget about it. And then sometimes I'll go back through those notes and say, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I could use this somewhere, or, or this could be the start of something. And that's kind of the way I do it with poems. And Googling, actually, when I'm writing a poem, you know, if I write a line about a fly, I'm Googling and finding out, wow, a fly has this many chambers in its heart, or it can it can fly backwards for half a minute, or whatever it is. I'll, I'll find out these interesting things, and they will just sort of go right into the poem, because I love stuff like that, you know, and I won't remember it. So if I write it in a poem, at least I, I will remember certain things. Is there ever a point where you're starting, I mean, novel is different, where you're starting a story and you go to yourself, wait a second, this isn't a story, this is a poem. Not really, no. When I'm writing a poem, I, I really clearly know I'm writing a poem. It feels different. I can't explain it exactly, but there's a different rhythm and a different sort of internal feeling about writing a poem. They both sort of have that subconscious mind working, but if the subconscious mind could be mapped the way the brain could be mapped, I think it's a different room. Prose is a different but adjacent room for me than poetry, and I know which room I'm in. What about starting an essay and then going, wait, this is a short story? That could be. That could be because, yeah, crossing over in prose a lot easier. Like, oh, well, if I follow it this way, the way something happened, maybe I could write an essay. But then if the essay doesn't work out, then I can make some stuff up and turn it into a story. Because writing essay, I think, is about finding the story in your experience. It's not sort of having necessarily a predetermined idea, but this experience struck me, and now I'm going to write it and see if I can find the story in it. And, you know, a lot of times I can't, 
and I say, well, gee, I really wanted to write about going to Lebanon and spending some time in Beirut. And I finally did get some of it into Bukowski. There's a little bit right. about the essay about being in love with a younger man who was half Lebanese and we went to Beirut. But at the time that it happened a few years ago, I took all these notes and I thought, I'm definitely going to write about this. It's been such an interesting trip. And then I found I couldn't find a story in it. There were just random details, and it didn't happen. Kim Adnizio, what is The Night Could Go in Either Direction? Oh, that's a, a collaborative chapbook that I'm doing with a press called Slapering Hall, which doesn't sound so great, but it actually means Sleepy Hollow in Dutch. And they're in the Hudson Valley. And they asked me to do a poetry chapbook because they do these collaborative chapbooks sometimes. And they asked me to choose an emerging poet and collaborate with her with our poems and then have a conversation about those poems. So I did that with a, a writer named Brittany Parham, who's uh, teaching at Stanford right now, whose work I liked a lot. And, and so we got together and she wrote prose poems, and I wrote lineated poems, and we had a conversation. We put it all together, and that's um, just a little project that's coming out in the fall. There are two word and music CDs, Swearing, Smoking, Drinking, and Kissing, and My Black Angel. And I know My Black Angel is related to a book. What's the other right. one? Right. That was the first word music CD I did with a fellow poet named Susan Brown, who's a, an Oakland poet. We had to do something for a show where they wanted poets to come and read and do something with musicians. So Susan and I got together with a guy who played a lot of instruments, and he happened to record in a number of our rehearsals, and we decided to take that and, and make a CD. It was just a fun project with both of our poems on it with music. Your daughter, Aya Cash, is a becoming very successful. Yeah, she is. <laughs> She's in um, You're the Worst, which you said it's now filming its third season. Yeah. Uh, and she was in Wolf of Wall Street. There's a line in Bukowski about some lines she had in uh, films. And when I mentioned I didn't know she was in that, you said, well, I decided to leave out the name of the film. Why? I don't know. I just, you know, I don't, I love you know, bragging about my daughter, but then it sort of also feels so much like name dropping in a certain way to say she was in a Scorsese film. And I did say that, actually. I just didn't name it. And I'm not sure why. I remember thinking about it. You know, no real reason. Well, she's now in her early 30s. Right. And um, she must be getting close to hitting the wall that actresses have had in Hollywood where suddenly they're no longer the ingenue and then they play the mother. But I think it's changing now. I hope so. And Aya is actually very committed. You know, she's really a committed feminist and she's really committed to, you know, things like gender equality and racial uh, lack of, I don't know how to say it, but, you know, the racial obtuseness that goes on now. And she's very committed to that. She's very interested in, you know, trying to address those things because that's her world. She's, you know, on a television show and uh, and she encounters that all the time, racism and sexism. And, and she's right now, actually, I think she's going to end up producing and starring in a movie based on Little Beauties, my first novel, tentative as these things go, it's already been through a number of Hollywood, you know, vortexes and fallen out the other end, but now it seems to be alive again. And, uh, you know, she wants a woman director. And she also said, well, I don't see why we, everybody here except this character can't be people of color. 
what's the deal? <laughs> Why do they have to be white? Everybody just assumes that these other characters are going to be white. And so she's just really aware of that, which is a very good thing. You know, we need more, especially young women, speaking up about that stuff. I was going to ask you uh, whether you plan to collaborate with her, but it's obviously <laughs> true that you are. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm not involved in anything. You know, I know the script is finished, and as usual, they're looking for the money, which is the usual story of trying to make a movie, especially an indie movie that actually has characters and isn't blowing up anything. In Bukowski in the Sundress, you talk about your third novel, which you then set aside because it wasn't working. Is it still dead or you started work on another one? It's Well, it's still dead. I think about it from time to time and I think about going back to it, but I think I just have a failure of nerve right now in trying to think about that book and trying to go back to it. So I've somewhat also just lost interest in it. I'm not sure I ever want to write another novel because they're so hard. And what I really want to do, what I started doing was working on a second collection of essays so what I really want to do next is another collection of essays and um, another book of poems eventually. What about theater, writing for plays? I actually did write a play over the past couple of years, but that too is sort of in limbo because it's so collaborative. You have to find all these people to to read it and to produce it and to put it on, and I just don't know that I, I'm up for that whole process. I, uh, my daughter, was going to stage a reading, you know, not right. as, but, you know, do a reading and then see what would happen. But she's gotten too busy with her career now to actually do that. I did apply to some things uh, with an earlier draft, actually. And I did actually take a playwriting class then to try to revamp and finish the play. And I do feel like it's finished, at least to the best of my ability. Now I've just sort of left it alone because I'm not sure what to do with it or whether I'm going to go back to it. You know, I don't really know anything about playwriting. I mean, I wrote this, and I, you know, I, I haven't even read that many plays. I mean, I've read, you know, some, obviously, but I don't know. So I don't have a sense, really, even though I've left it alone for a while, whether it's really any good or not. Or, you know, I, I think at some point I may submit it again to some places and see if anything happens with it. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com. Or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>